Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Miller. Today we're going to be talking about a topic which is near and dear to my heart and has been for the past at least 50 years. As a practicing psychologist, the question of what is mental illness, how do we treat mental illness, what is it like to have a mental illness, have been paramount in my life. Our guest today are two people who have also made the topic and the issues around mental illness paramount in their lives. Sonia Nesh is with us today. She has written a manual called Advocating for Someone with a Mental Illness. Valerie Williamson is the head, or the chief I should say, of the Mendocino County Mental Health Advisory Board. Stay tuned, you're going to want to hear what these two ladies have to say about mental illness, mental health, mental health treatment, and advocating for someone with a mental illness. But first, news and notes in psychology and medicine. Many of you have wondered from time to time about the controversy surrounding coffee. Is it good for you? Is it bad for you? Does it cause arrhythmia? Does it cause your fingers to get cold? What does it do? We do know it gives you a little boost. Sometimes it gives you a bigger boost. Some places can put as many as, oh, four shots, four shots of espresso in a cup of coffee. I don't know what they call that, but it's, uh, it's quite a zinger. There are also these little uh, five-hour boost uh, bottles that you can buy that are concentrated caffeine. At the same time, there are warnings about caffeine. When I went down to visit my dad when he got uh, bladder cancer when he was 82 years old, the first thing his surgeon said to me after he said hello, or did he say hello? I think he said hello. But the first thing he said after that was, is your dad a coffee drinker? I said, yeah, why? He said, I've been doing this for 35 years. He said, every case of bladder cancer I've ever seen is with a coffee drinker. I gave that a lot of thought. Interesting stuff. Well, here's a study of 42,000 healthy Germans. What it found is coffee does not, again, coffee does not increase the risk of heart attacks or strokes. Yes, 42,000 Germans were studied. They found that people who consumed at least three cups of coffee of regular or decaffeinated coffee were about 25% less likely to develop type 2 diabetes over the nine-year period than those who drank little or no coffee. Interesting, huh? Nine-year study, 42,000 people, 25% less likely to develop diabetes. Other studies have found comparable protection against diabetes as well as Parkinson's disease and gallstones. So what does that mean? Coffee up? Well... Give it some thought, folks. You might want to use coffee as a medicine. I don't know about three cups a day, but maybe one or two would be enough for most of us. Hey, how about sitting around? I sit around in my work. I sit around all day long. I mean, when I meet with patients, I can't dance around the room. I've got to sit in a chair. At least that's what's expected of me. Well, it turns out that sitting too much increases the risk of premature death even in people who exercise. Oh boy, here it is. 
A new Australian study of 222,000 healthy adults. How did they study 222,000? I, I guess I have to believe it. 222,000 healthy adults. The study was published. This is a good uh, journal, the Archives of Internal Medicine. The greatest risk was amongst those sitting for at least 11 hours a day. That's me. Very often for decades of my life, I sat in chairs seeing patients 10 or 11 hours a day. These people who sat for 11 hours a day were about 40% more likely to die over the course of the three-year study than those sitting less than four hours a day. I'm glad I wasn't in that study or I wouldn't be here doing the program. These findings are in line, I shouldn't josh about such things, so I retract that. Those, these findings are in line with other research and held true regardless of body weight, age, overall health, smoking status, and time spent exercising. You got that clear, folks? If you sat for 11 hours a day, you were 40% more likely to die over the course of this three-year study, and that's true when they held constant body weight, obesity, age, over, uh, overall health, smoking, and so on. The sitting alone is what is so damaging. Prolonged sitting can have adverse effects, notably on blood vessel function, cholesterol, triglycerides, and blood sugar. Wow. Many people spend 90% of their waking hours sitting what do you do? Try to break up prolonged sitting time by getting up every hour or two and walking for a few minutes? I think maybe, maybe that's why Freud did the 50-minute hours, so for 10 minutes he could walk a little bit. He lived to a ripe old age until cancer got him from smoking cigars, as you all may recall. Well, this study is related to our program for the day. This study is called Suffering in Silence, and it's, it's really very touching. More than 40% of the over 1,000 adults studied in this uh, survey said they wouldn't disclose symptoms of depression to their doctor. Yes. Again, this uh, study was published, if you want to know the reference, September-October 2011 issue of the Annals of Family Medicine, found that the most common reason, why do you think people don't tell their doctor when they're, study, when they're suffering from severe depression? The most common reason was concern that the doctor would suggest antidepressant drugs. In other words, 40% of those suffering de from depression were so afraid that the doctor would give them antidepressant drugs that they never mentioned their illness. Wow. Other reasons given were concerns about confidentiality and a fear of being referred to a psychiatrist. Well, that brings us into our topic for the day, which is mental illness. What is mental illness? How is mental illness treated? And what you can do if you have a person in your family who's studying from, for mental illness. Our guests today are Valerie Williamson, as I've mentioned before. She's the chair of the Mendocino County Mental Health Advisory Board. She herself has a person in her family who she may talk to you about who has suffered 
from mental illness. Valerie is, has been involved with being an advocate for all of us with regard to this topic for a good part of her life. Our other guest, Sonia Nesh, has written a book called Advocating for Someone with a Mental Illness. Advocating, what does that mean to advocate for someone with a mental illness? We're gonna find out. Sonia Nesh has two master's degrees, one in sociology and one in management, and she also has a BA in, in business administration. I should note here that she has the honor of being given the Women Change America Award in 2005. Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics, Valerie Williamson and Sonia Nesh. Sonia, are you there? I am. Thank you. You're welcome. Hi, Valerie. Hi, doctor. Mental illness. What is a mental illness? Some consider it a condition that disrupts a person's thinking, feeling, mood, ability to relate to others, and daily functioning. It, just as diabetes is a disorder of the, of the pancreas, mental illness for some is considered a medical condition, others a psychological condition that results in diminished capacity for coping with the ordinary demands of life. The history of treatment of mental illness reads like your worst nightmare. I mean, it's beyond your worst nightmare, and we have history going back 10,000 years to ancient Egypt. We know that they didn't know quite what to do, tried various things. The Greeks and Romans had ideas. Over the years, everything imaginable has been attempted to do something to, for, or against, literally against, those who are mentally ill. And when I say to, for, or against, we have done things like chain them up in caves, we have drilled into their heads, we have wrapped them in material and then sprayed the material with ice-cold water. Fifty years ago, when I was a young psychologist in, in uh, New Hampshire, I witnessed patients in the mental hospital that I literally lived in, in those days we lived in, I witnessed patients being hit with bars of soap wrapped in women's stockings. They used it as sort of a, I don't know what even to call it, a medieval device. There were, those were the days before tranquilizers, so when these, these afflicted people acted up or acted out or jumped around, they would get hit over the head with these bars of soap. I witnessed them electroshocked. We've cut out pieces of their brain called lobotomy. At one point in this country, there was a practice called transorbital lobotomy that was, a, was an outpatient procedure in a doctor's office where you would go in and they would literally pull your eye out of the socket and then go in with a scalpel behind your eye and, and slice away transorbital lobotomy. Uh, some people may remember that um, the author Ernest Hemingway was given a whole series of electroshock treatments before he suicided with a shotgun in, in his mouth. 
and they and these stories of of uh, of what we now consider almost heinous treatment go on and on, and there are some who believe that the modern-day version of chemical treatment of these people is just as heinous as tying them up or chaining them up, because what we're doing is using chemical straitjackets and chemistry to attempt, all attempting to what? Help them function or help them find some some sense of serenity in a, in a world and a life that is confusing, chaotic, and painful to them. These are very serious, very serious conditions. You can call them illnesses, some people do. There's arguments, almost you might call silly arguments over whether it's a physical condition or a psychological condition or you want to call it a mental condition or an emotional condition. But whatever name you give it, and, and over the decades we give different names at different times, as you all know that how we've gone from, from manic depressive to bipolar, from dementia praecox to schizophrenia, you know, different names at different times in history. But the bottom line is that these folks suffer in ways that the rest of us who don't have these conditions will never even be able to imagine. And their conditions cannot be overcome through willpower. They're not related to their character. I have treated people who are the sweetest people, the friendliest people, the most darling, the most dear people, who can hardly get out of their home, who can hardly feed themselves. And yet, when you sit and talk to them, they're lovely people. And, it, and it's not a matter of intelligence. You know the story, I don't know, some of you may remember the story I tell about the man who has a flat tire out in the middle of nowhere and he takes off his tire and he goes for his spare and he puts his spare on and just as he goes to get the lug nuts, a truck comes by and he had the lug nuts in his wheel cap and the, tr and the, and the truck speeding by hits the wheel cap and all his lug nuts go flying away and he's looking, how am I going to put my spare on in the middle of nowhere? And he, and he looks across the street, and there are these two guys standing behind these iron bars. It's a big fence around this huge building, and these two men are watching him. And one of the two men watching him yells out, Hey, take one of the lug nuts off each of your other three tires and put that on, on your spare, and then you'll get the few miles to the gas station. They'll give you some spares. And the guy says, geez, that's a great idea. And he looks up and he sees State Mental Hospital. And he says, well, he says what, what are you guys doing in there if you come up with this idea? And the man behind the fence says, I may be crazy, but I'm not stupid. Well, you can be what's called crazy and brilliant. Socrates suffered from hallucinations. He talked about them. It's considered that as many as 6% live in this country with a serious mental illness and mental illness. The National Institute of Mental Health reports that one in four adults in this country, approximately 60 million people, experience a mental health disorder in any given year. The U.S. Surgeon General reports that 10% of children and adolescents in the United States 
suffer from serious emotional and mental disorders that cause significant functional impairment in their day-to-day -day lives, at home, in school, and with peers. The World Health Organization has reported that four of the 10 leading causes of disability in the US and other developed countries are mental disorders. I think I'm gonna repeat that one. The World Health Organization has reported that four of the 10 leading causes of disability in the US and other developed countries are mental disorders. They predict that by the year 2020, which is eight years away, major depressive illness will be the leading cause of disability in the world for women and children. Mm. Without treatment, the consequences of mental illness for both the individual and society are just, they're staggering. It's considered that the cost of untreated mental illness in our country is $100 billion each year. Do the treatments work? Do we have any treatments? Are we just putting these people in mental straitjackets with the chemistry that we're using? What can we do? Let's talk to two women who have made this topic a major topic in their lives. To begin with, Valerie, tell us something about the Mendocino County Mental Health Advisory Board. Who are you? What do you do? We're a, just a group of people, and most of us have a background in the medical profession, but you don't have to have a background to be a member of the board. Um, several times a supervisor will um, ask you to serve, uh, several of our members have been asked. I volunteered, um, and I didn't know what I was in for at the time. I have two very close, beloved family members that are mentally ill, and I saw a very broken system. And I wanted to try and change it. Um, I do have a, a small, uh, little bit of uh, uh, finger in the medical profession, and I thought, you know, maybe I could, maybe I could help. Well, um, the first thing I, I did, they gave me a, a copy of Mad in America, which is a marvelous book. Uh, it is the history of how we have treated the mentally ill here in America over the last 50 or 60 years. And it was horrifying to me. So that was the first my first foray into the board. Um, and then I realized that all we are is just a, we're a, an advisory committee. So we advise the board of supervisors on a lot of different, very difficult issues pertaining to mental illness, uh, funds that we might want to spend, and treatment, um, facilities, uh, if we need uh, people to come and 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 work you know now we're having to hire folks and it's difficult to get folks into Mendocino County frankly we don't pay enough um, so we're losing really great people to 
uh, different counties. Lake County is grabbing a bunch of our folks right now. Uh, so it, we're in a bit of an emergency situation right now. Valerie, when you say that uh, the supervisors ask your advice on various issues, what are the kinds of things that they ask for you, you the board to look at and give them advice on? Well, the last uh, issue that we discussed for the board was uh, Laura's Law. Um, you know, should we take it up? You know, what ramifications does it have for our county? How much does it cost? That was a real main sticker. We tried not to let that get into our discussions because we wanted n cost not to be, uh, to have anything to do with our discussions on Laura's Law. If it was good for the people we wanted it to be, you know, put in. Uh, we wanted the, the supervisors to, to vote for it. For those unfamiliar, would you please just give a brief description of what Laura's Law is? Laura's Law is a law. In fact, Sonia knows so much more about this than, than I do. Would you like her to uh, I chime would. in? I would. Sonia, I'm going to let you talk Give about us a this. brief description of Laura's Law, please, Sonia. Okay. Uh, Laura's Law um, um, helps people who don't know they're mentally ill the sickest of the sick is how I think of it. People who, um, who don't know they're mentally ill and even if they did, you know, couldn't access services. Um, they're people who are jailed frequently, some every, every week um, on the coast. Uh, and, um, or they're people who are hospitalized frequently because of suicide attempts. And so they cost the county a lot of money, hundreds of thousands of dollars each year. And it... Um, Nevada County has um, enacted Laura's Law, and they actually save um, $503,000 over their first 2.64 years of implementation. So it actually saves money by, by um, fewer hospitalizations and fewer jailings. Um, so it's a very cost-effective um, way to help people who don't know they need help, and um, there, there's no way for these people to get help today without Laura's Law, because a Laura's Law case manager will go out and sit under a bridge with someone who's homeless and jailed frequently and ask them, you know, tell me about your life. You know, what would you like? What would help you? What would you like? And then slowly, you know, begin the process of getting them into the system to access wraparound services, which are paid for by the Mental Health Services Act, so my, my understanding, yes, my understanding of Laura's Law, correct me here if I'm off, is that it's a way of attracting people into treatment by going out into the community and actually locating those who have been identified as suffering but who aren't coming in for treatment and, and spending time with them and then attracting them into treatment. Is that correct? Exactly, yes. Yeah. Actually, for, for those of you who want more details on Laura's Law, we're not going to spend a lot of time on it in this program, but if you go to my website, mindbodyhealthpolitics.org, we did a whole program on Laura's Law, and, and we had the chief judge from Nevada County on the program as well as the, the therapist. So that's one of the things, coming back to you now, Valerie, that the Mental Health Advisory Board would, would talk, would give advice to the supervisors about. What else are you dealing that's with? That's right. We have uh, several committees. Uh, one committee is uh, jail first responders. Uh, that committee has to do with uh, how our mentally ill are treated in the jails. 
We want to make sure that they have the treatments that they need. We don't have a psychiatrist there full-time anymore. We had uh, Dr. Rosoff was there for many years. Uh, he's not there right now. Um, why, why not? Uh, well, he was fired. He was the highest... Uh, he made the most money of anybody in Mendocino County. And so the good supervisors and everyone decided that it was too much. He was getting made, making too much money? He was making too much money. Do you happen to remember how much he was making? It was $200,000. Yes, I do remember. Thank you. That's good for the public to know. It is good for the public to know. Okay. I think they should. So he was fired, but he wasn't replaced with, say, a younger or a, no, a psychiatrist who charged less? We, we had a, a psychiatric nurse... Uh, and our last psychiatric nurse just got double the pay over at Lake County, so we lost our psychiatric nurse. So now there's no psychiatric help or well, nursing or doctor I'm, I'm in the jail? Told, I'm told, and I don't know how true this is, yeah. uh, that we do have a psychiatrist that goes in uh, part-time to make sure that you know our, our good people in jail are getting, you know, the, the help that they need. I, I can't imagine that's really happening, but our jail and first responders committee is going to be finding out about that. So we do have, we do have that as a committee. Uh, we have a lot, of, um, a lot of things happening in our children's committee and our TAY, which is the uh, transitional aged youth. Those are kids that are, that are aging out of foster care. Mm -hmm. uh, so, you know, we want to make sure that they're taken care of and that they're just not dropped. Mm -hmm. I just got a question here that I want to ask you. Mm -hmm. uh, it was handed to me. What was the advice given to the supervisors by the Mental Health Advisory Board regarding Laura's Law? Our, our, what we asked for, the Mental Health Board asked for a, uh, a mental health court we had a mental health court uh, years ago, and it worked really well. And so we thought that it would be a great idea to have these people seen in a judiciary where someone was aware of their problems and what they could do, you know, um, rather than just putting them through the mill. But the bottom line is you, you, you recommended against Laura's Law to we the did. board? We did. Okay, that's what the, uh, that's what the question we was. We did. Uh, do you have any thoughts about this, Sonia? Oh, I, I do. Um, mental health court is a very good thing, but it's far more expensive than Laura's Law. And it does not deal with the acutely ill who are not part of the criminal justice system. You know, the, the people who make numerous suicide attempts and have to be hospitalized frequently, um, it doesn't touch them. So it, it's far more expensive, and it doesn't reach the Laura's Law population, um, or a lot of the Laura's Law population. And, and about the jail, um, can I make a comment? About yes, please do. Jail medical care. Um, I, um, I had heard that Dr. Rosoff quit in December, and he quit... Um, before he would have had to answer the questions from the grand jury. Um, and um, I thought, you know, part of the problem was that he was not allowed to practice the medicine that he, you know, that he, he needs to practice. So um, they were um, refusing psychiatric medical treatment for two weeks as an inmate enters. Their, their, their uh, psych meds are discontinued cold. And then when, after the two weeks, they're given the cheapest drug in a category. 
And the, the drugs in a category are not all the same. So if someone comes in and Zyprexa is keeping their psychotic symptoms at bay, their hallucinations, their delusions, they're put on Thorazine after two weeks. If someone comes in on Paxil, which is working well for their major depression, they're put on Elevil. Elevil and Thorazine are the cheapest meds in the category. And that, you know, they don't always work. And it's a very sad thing. Well, you know, there's a controversy, as many of you know, have been listening to my program. There's a controversy about the use of any of these medicines. It's not only going on in the United States, it's going on all over the world right now. For those of you more deeply interested in this topic, I reference uh, my program with Robert Whitaker uh, regarding his book, Anatomy of an Epidemic. Uh, you might want to look at the book, Anatomy of an Epidemic. I remind you that uh, he is a high-level, Whitaker, a high-level uh, investigative journalist with a lifelong of experience who uh, is saying in his book that these medicines are not only not helping or curing mental illness, he is claiming that they are creating mental illness. And his theory, or more than his theory, he claims that what he has discovered through his research is that the whole theory that people who are mentally ill have neurotransmitter or organic problems creating uh, deviations from the norm in their neurotransmitters, the chemicals in their brain, the theory that the, that the mentally ill have aberrations in these chemicals is totally mistaken. He is saying that the mentally ill have the same neurotransmitters as everybody else, and so that what happens when you give them these medicines is you're creating mental illness by creating a fluctuation in their very neurotransmitters. In other words, if you have normal neurotransmitters and you put a chemical in there, you're going to create chaos. And Whitaker is further saying that when you then come off <clears throat> these neurotransmitters, your body then has to go through a withdrawal, just like any other drug withdrawal, so that people then experience symptoms and they think that they're, quote, going crazy again, well, they don't realize that what they're doing is coming is is having withdrawal from their very medicine. Uh, this so we we've got a very controversial issue here, uh, both the good side if there is one, the bad side if there is one. To use the words good and bad, let's say effective or non-effective, about the the whole uh, um, issue of chemical treatment. And from a certain perspective, and this is so important for us to all remember, from a certain perspective, the use of these chemicals, or medicines, if you will, is nothing more than a modern-day version of drilling into their heads, shackling them to the walls, putting them in straitjackets, giving them electroshock. In other words, it's just another, if you will, best-intentioned, best-intentioned attempt to do something that is not only ineffective, but may be creating more pain and more suffering uh, than, than not only was intended, but than, than the illness themselves, if such a thing is possible. At the same time, we have to do something, don't we? So, what else, before we come, we're going to talk more to, to Sonia about advocating for these folks, what else are some of the things that the, that the mental health advisory board faces that you have to deal with? Well, you know, we, we invite everyone to come to our meetings. So 
you know, you're all welcome to come to the meetings. We meet throughout the county. And we do that so that as many people can come to our meetings as possible. Um, if you want something put on the agenda, contact me. Send me an email. Um, I'm on the website for the Mendocino County Mental Health Board. And uh, you can just look us up. We have a, a, a wonderful website. And, um, you know, it'll, it'll tell you exactly what our agenda is. We are always an open meeting. Uh, we operate under the Brown Act. And that is so that everyone can, can hear what we say. There are no secrets in the Mental Health Board. Uh, we will take up anything that the Board of Supervisors asks us to. We also go, I'm a great door knocker. I will knock on doors and ask people questions. And I'm pretty well known for that. Um, if I have a question, I'm going to find the answer to it. If I don't know it, I'll find it. And so... Um, it, it, more is better with many things. More people involved is always better. I think this is an emergency, and I think everybody needs to get involved in it. You're saying it's an emergency because the funding has been cut back so severely yes. that, the, that the facilities and the, the people who do the treatment have been cut back so much in this county? Is that why it's an emergency? It, it's a terrible emergency. Here on the coast, we have, um, I believe, one psychiatrist that's working in the county mental health, not uh, the Coast Clinic. Coast Clinic has, is fully manned. Um, but but our, our little facility, uh, we have one lady that gives injectables, and we will treat children where Coast Clinic cannot treat children and will not give injectables. So you have one lady for the entire North Coast, is yes. that what you're saying? Yes. Which is how many people do you believe that you know, serves? 10,000, 20,000 people? Oh, probably so. More, because the, uh, the hospital exactly. in Fort Bragg uh, figures that they, tr they, they treat approximately uh, a range of about 30,000 sure. people. And you have one person for that in yes. county mental health? Yes. Here, here on the coast. Yes. Sonia, so, you, you... I'd like... Can I comment on please, a couple of the things? Certainly. Okay, so one of them is um, mental health has um, just... The one psychiatrist is Dr. Garrett, who is only there one day a week. That's right. I'm um, sorry. You're right. You're absolutely yeah. right on that. Yeah. So um, it's one day a week for 30,000 people. 80, yeah. Okay. Right, yeah. and, and I guess Eight I, hours. I would say with, with over 20 million mental health followers coming into the county, um, we should be able to provide um, more adult patient care. Children's services is, is quite good, actually. They have some very good leadership. They get 60% of the mental health dollars that come into the county, and I, no one is very clear about where the, the rest of the money goes, the money that could be going for adult patient care. Um, and, and then I'm going to come in on your... Wait, wait, before you... No, save yeah. that comment because I'm going to want to hear it, but I want to ask Valerie, do you have an idea as chair of the Mental Health Advisory Board where the rest of that $20 million goes? Oh, sure. It goes to our org providers. Those are our organizations that are set up to, to have treatment. We have Tapestry in Ukiah and in, in Willits, uh, Redwood Children's Services, those organizations are getting a lot of the money. We're privatizing right now. For the good or the bad, 
uh, we're letting our, our mental health treatments go into private organizations, uh, for-profit organizations. Uh, these are, are places that, I guess they're non-profit, but people are sure making, you know, nice salaries, I think, some of them. Um, you know, they're, they're doing a good thing, and they're picking up the slack where the county, in my opinion, should be picking up the slack. We should be treating our poor folks and the people that need or come to our offices for help. So you're advocating for county or what you might say government taking control and being in charge of the treatment rather than sending it out to private institutions or private organizations or private businesses. Is that correct? I wouldn't go that far. I, I really like in everything a team effort. Uh -huh. I think that we, we are treating whole people and I think we need you know, a team, somebody that, that will see their, their physical body and, and uh, you know, their, their mental issues as well. I, I think a team effort would be the very best for most patients. Uh, I'm gonna, this is a question for both of you. Do you know uh, approximately how many people are treated each year uh, in our county uh, who avail themselves of, uh, of services? Do you know, Valerie? No, you know, I should have looked that up. I, I, we do have those uh, uh, numbers. In fact, I just spoke with uh, Tom Pinasoto, who is the director of the mental health uh, in Ukiah, and he has promised to get me those numbers. I just spoke with the, you know, all the, uh, the numbers folks in Ukiah because the board, quite frankly, wants to know. How many are being treated? Absolutely, yeah. yep. If anybody who's I, listening I has that information, please call comment. us in. We'd like to hear. Yes, Sonia, go ahead. Go ahead. I wouldn't comment on that. That that um, the the um, uh, the Fort Bragg office um, is trying to shift everyone they can over to the clinic, and so they're telling patients who have been there for ten years that they're no longer a patient there, in order to send them over to the clinic, and the the clinic. Um, is not used to handling such um, severe cases. So there's, there's really there's a serious problem in adult um, patient care. Um, Valerie is shaking her head. Yes, I, yes, I yes. I absolutely agree, Sonia. I've seen it myself. I know that the clinic is at critical mass. I have spoken with uh, the good Dr. Klein and several other folks over at the clinic, and you know we're they're building onto the behavioral health side of the clinic because they, you know, there's just so many folks. Um, I actually had to bring a person to the hospital one day while I was sitting waiting to talk to someone in the clinic, and he kept going back and forth from mental health to the clinic, and people couldn't, no one would treat him. And so I asked him if he wanted to come in my car, and I took him to the hospital, to the emergency room. Um, this poor man was went back and forth at least three times. So, I so Richard, may, may I comment on, on the Whitaker comment, just a brief comment? Certainly. Please? Okay, I want to say that um, I think of each mental illness as on a continuum. So you can have, you know, a mild form of, say, bipolar disorder and a severe form of bipolar disorder. Um, more than half of people with mental illness attempt suicide. And up to 20% succeed. 
So the, the ones that are best at actually killing themselves are people with bipolar disorder and people with schizoaffective disorder. And they do that because the symptoms, hearing voices all the time, being so paranoid um, th- that you are afraid of everything, those are unbearable symptoms, and people choose death over that. And so medicine, whether to take or not, is an individual choice. It's done in collaboration with um, either a primary care physician or with a psychiatrist. It, it is not being forced on the masses. As, uh, and um, and it, so it's an individual choice. It should be one of the options that people have um, in order to bring their suffering down enough so that they can function in families, in work, in their communities. Yeah, I think the issue here, Sonia, is that there are those out there, many, who believe that, in fact, these chemicals uh, called medicines are being forced on the masses, and they believe that the way they're being forced is through a combination of big farm, the pharmaceutical companies that are pushing the medicines uh, around the country. They're uh, bribing doctors uh, to talk positively about the medicines. You know, we have some were great evidence of that those kind of bribes going on. Right. And then you saw that, you heard me in, in the beginning of the program talk about how 40% of those suffering from depressive illness are afraid to tell their doctor out of fear of uh, having these medicines put on them. Uh, we also know that the entire profession of psychiatry now has moved to a chemical uh, form of treatment whereby they see patients for five or ten minutes once a month uh, oversee, just ask a few questions, oversee their medication, and that's the entire treatment, and that the, you know, the field of psychiatry has moved in that direction. So there is that concern that, that right. there, and, and you know that, yeah. that, that of all... And, and I, I, I have some complaints about, you know, big pharma and all that stuff, and about, you know, when people go into hospitals, they begin, uh, I mean, the last time my daughter was in, she came back on 12 medicines, which her doctor said was a record. They just throw everything at them, and I, you know, I'm the first to complain about that, but I do believe it's an individual choice, um, you know, for the person who's not in hospital. You, you can throw your doctor's prescription away, and many people do. Well, this is an excellent lead-in for us to talk to you some about your book, because when you just said this is an individual choice, mm-hmm. um, we know that many of the folks who are suffering from these conditions do not have a sense of reason or do not have a sense of being able to make a choice and they look mm-hmm. to others to help make the choice and the name of your book is advocating for someone with a mental illness so to begin with what does that mean to advocate for someone with a mental illness well it, it means to partner with someone who wants you to partner with them so in my case it was um, being an advocate for my daughter um, my daughter, um, a neighbor gave my daughter um, LSD when she was 15, and she never got back. She was diagnosed at 15 with schizophrenia, at 21 with bipolar disorder, <clears throat> and together those are called schizoaffective disorder. Um, so I have been with her through the whole thing, you know, to, um, I go into all the psychiatrist appointments and, um, and to the counseling appointments when she invites me or when I say I have some issues I'd like to bring up, can I come in for a few minutes? And... Um, with me as her advocate, I believe we have been able to get to um, the proper diagnosis and to um, identify the symptoms that help the doctor um, determine what medicine will be tried first, because it's all trial and error. 
it's hard to get a diagnosis and having one other person um, with you to um, um, have, you know, fill in the symptoms that they notice helps the doctor um, find a diagnosis and find a medicine and the right dosage of it. Even once a person has a diagnosis, um, some medicines don't work for a person. It's all your own individual biochemistry. It may work, may not. And then it's important for the advocate or the partner to notice the symptoms um, along with you. You know, if, if the voices are breaking through on this one antipsychotic, then you need to tell the doctor, and the doctor will help you decide whether to increase the dose of that antipsychotic or move to another one because that one isn't working. So it's, a, it's very complex, and you want, um, you want the right diagnosis, you want the right dose of, of the right medication and the least dose possible. And having two people um, give information to the medical provider helps. So the kind of advocacy that it sounds like you're talking about is similar to, if not identical, to advocacy that is being put forth for all patients going into any kind of treatment, namely to have someone who is not suffering from an illness to be there with the patient, whether it's pancreas or organic or whether it's pneumonia or whatever it is, it's having someone there who is not suffering that sort of to be your, your aid, to be your, as you put it, your advocate so, and to keep an eye on things. For exactly. example, you know, when I went into the into Stanford Hospital uh, uh, three years ago and had uh, a knee replacement, and I did not have my advocate uh, had left, and and a nurse missed a transfusion, and mm. there I there I was right. But had oh. I had an advocate there, they would have spotted the fact that that uh, that drip system wasn't functioning, and I would have had the transfusion. So you're talking about that on the emotional That's level, exactly aren't you? That's exactly right. And- and I want to just give one more example. People with bipolar disorder may not notice if they're drifting into mania because they like the extra energy. You know, they like needing less sleep and being able to be endlessly creative. That's right. But with an advocate, a partner, they can say, John, I notice that you're going into mania. And then with a trusting relationship, then a person, you know, can take their antipsychotic, whatever their crisis intervention plan is, to stop the symptom breakthrough, stop the relapse so that they don't end up being hospitalized. Without a partner, sometimes um, people can end up, you know, the mania just gets bigger and bigger until hospital is the only, only thing that can happen. But you can avoid relapse and hospitalization if, with, if you have someone you trust to tell you when they notice symptom breakthrough. Interesting that we talk now about hospitalization as a step that can occur. This was not always the case, by the way. There have been times in history when, including in this country, where we used a form of treatment that was not hospitalization, and it was very effective, but it went out of vogue. The treatment was taking people out into the country. We did this in Massachusetts. It was called moral treatment. Not that we waved a finger at the patients, you know, with morality. Moral meant good morals, meaning taking good care of them. And this also was used back in ancient Greece and Rome for a while, where they took people out in the country, they gave them fresh air, they let them roam free, they gave them good food, they gave them exercise, and there was a great deal of success with that. But it went out of vogue. It went out of vogue in this country for many reasons, including, of course, the advent of, of, of the pills. Um, right. And, you and, know, and we had our own Talmage here in, in Mendocino County. Talmage was like that. You know, they raised cows, they raised organic vegetables, 
you know, they participated in this community life. It was very successful, Talmadge. Yes, yes, I yes. see Valerie shaking your head. Absolutely. You know about that, huh? I do very much. And, and the first mental hospital I worked at, that one in New Hampshire, where I said where they hit people over the head, but also what they had, it's terrible, but what they had was a farm, an active farm where the patients worked, and they had vegetable gardens where they worked, and people worked outside, and, and they had lives. They had real lives and a real sense of community. Uh, we don't. We've moved away from that, and the institutions, what we call mental institutions now, are more like prisons. Uh, and if yeah. you ever had the almost unfortunate experience of visiting one of these these places, you'd you'd be horrified. I mean, it, it's it's almost beyond imagination what uh, what goes on, and and that's why we in the in California, as we all know, many of the institutions were closed for that reason. But now we're dealing with the exact same with these folks who are on the street, and and we don't know what to do. Uh, with them in that situation. Uh, I just want to uh, say that to those of you listening uh, to this very important program uh, about uh, an illness, as you heard earlier, that afflicts such a high percentage. What did I say? The World Health Organization said four out of ten of the, of the most serious conditions in the world are mental, uh, and that, um, uh, let's see here, 60 million Americans experience a mental health disorder in a given year. 60 million Americans. If you want to call in, now's the time. We have a little time for your calls. 937-5103. 707-937-5103. Both of you, Valerie and Sonia, came into this, this specialty, into this area, through personal experience. And both with daughters. That's uh, correct. Isn't that correct? That's yes. true for you, yes. too, as well, Sonia. Uh, yes. I'm going to want to ask you about that in a moment, but first we are going to take a call here. I'm getting a signal. Uh, welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. You're on the air. Good morning. You're, uh, let, let me put my question here. Let me think my question here. Um, your, your guest said that this, her daughter, somebody gave her LSD, and that brought on schizophrenia. A show that you had on maybe two, three months ago uh, with one of these eminent new psychedelic researchers out of the university said that that's a misnomer and that it may bring out what was already, uh, there's already a predilection for, or however it's stated. And I'm confused because I've always feared, like, oh, well, you give a kid mushrooms, they can, they can never come back from it. But then this guy was like, oh, no, no, we've, we've pretty much debunked that, and it's only if the condition, if there was a pre-existing, like, predilection for that, or whatever the word is. Uh, can you address what, what you think about that? I, I, I'd, like to, I'd like to respond to that. Go ahead. This um, is Sonia you know, Nesh. Uh, I just want to, for you listeners, uh, Sonia Nesh is responding. She's the author of Advocating for Someone with a Mental Illness. Go ahead, Sonia, please. So um, drugs like that can um, can bring out the illness in someone that's predisposed, but it also happens in people who don't have the, the genetic predisposition to it. There are a lot of studies now, especially around marijuana um, and also LST, that, that show that. So while it doesn't happen to everybody, it can happen. Um, and I think, I mean, one thing I advise families, I, I facilitate um, family support group, NAMI family support group on the coast, and have for 20 years, but... When you know you have bipolar in your family, it runs in families, and you need to start with your, you know, the young people letting them know that they may not want to mess around with drugs that could 
um, bring on um, bipolar disorder, psychosis. The thing that stands out for me uh, from that series on psychedelic medicine was a statement by Dr. Jim Fadiman, uh, who wrote the book, uh, The Psychedelic Explorer's Guide. Uh, and uh, Dr. Fadiman has been a researcher in psychedelic medicine for, I think, half a century. And what he said was, remember, these are strong medicines only to be taken under the direct supervision of someone who is experienced with supervising the taking. In other words, these are not things to be taken uh, recreationally or personally experimentally when we're talking about these powerful ones such as LSD, ayahuasca, and mushrooms, although we do know that people do take them recreationally. But his advice was it, it, take it under the supervision. And so, you know, the, other than that, it's caveat emptor, and uh, there is risk involved. Let's take another call. Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. You're on the air. Hi, uh, my name is Valerie, and I I was actually a secretary for um, a psychiatrist who works with the county patient um, through telemedicine. Um, I know she picked up some cases after Dr. Rosoff left, and I was just wondering what um, your guest opinions were on the contracted doctor in the telemedicine. She works for Marin County and um, probably sees these patients, you know, one time in person ever. Great question. What do you all think about uh, telemedicine for the mentally ill? You know, this is a very personal opinion that I'm going to give you, not for the board. This is Valerie Williamson's personal opinion. I hate them. I want, I think that when you're dealing with people, um, nuances are so important, and I'm afraid that you might miss those uh, with, a, with a doctor that you, you're seeing on a screen or a patient that you're seeing on a screen. And, and I know that, you know, just a look, a look can change um, you know, how someone's feeling, you know, a, a good clinician might be able to see that if you're sitting across the, the desk or, or, you know, the room from them. And I'm afraid you might miss that. Now, that's my personal opinion. So more, on your, more, more on your personal oh. opinion, Valerie. How's your daughter doing? My daughter is doing very, very well. Um, after... 22 years of dual diagnosis. She's finally on the correct medications. She's finishing up the last uh, semester in school. She's almost 40 years old. Sonia, how's your daughter doing? Um, actually, very well. Extremely well. She's just had to have an increase in her mood stabilizer, but it has solved all of the problems she was having. So we pay very close attention. Um, I, I know... And, and a, a, a question I'm not going to ask you both uh, might be in people's minds, but there's no question about it in my mind, which is that the success that both of your daughters have had have to be very much related to how much the two of you have been involved. And I, I see the look on your face, Valerie, because you're sitting right here. You know that that's accurate. And so it, to me, if there's a message here, both in the, in the title of Sonia's book, Advocating, and in the work that Valerie's doing with the Mental Health Advisory Board, the, the strong message to me is that if you, when you have, not if, but when, because it's affecting almost every family in the country, 
when you have someone who is suffering from one of these afflictions. You must be involved. You can't not be involved. It affects everybody in the family, and the more you get involved and the more you advocate for them, the more the possibility of their success. And Valerie is shaking her head yes. Absolutely. Absolutely, yes. Get involved. Don't throw these folks away. They're wonderful jewels of people. We, we need to save each and every one, and I think with more family... Uh, you know, uh, people getting involved, um, a lot could be could be gained. Um, a tremendous amount can tremendous be gained. And, and, and the other message that I'm hearing from both of you is that you, we can go to government when you can afford it. We can go to private practitioners. But at the bottom line, we have to do a lot of the work at home. That's where it's at because these folks are with us 24 hours a day. And when you go to a therapist even once a week, twice a week, three times a week, it's three little hours in a week that's 24 hours a day for seven days, isn't it? Absolutely. Yes. yes. So that's the story on this, folks. It means a lot of personal involvement. You're going to be facing this at some time in your life, either personally or in your family. Reach out. Don't make it a secret. Don't be one of those who doesn't tell anybody because you're afraid of what will happen. The more you can talk, the better. And that's the story. Thank you for listening to today's broadcast of Mind, Body, Health, and Politics, which is made possible by our staff at KZYRX and our in-studio engineer, my dear friend, Mike Delora. Please join me again in exactly two weeks at 9 o'clock. Wait a second, I retract. Join me next week. We have a change because next week. Join me next week at 9 o'clock. Until then, this is Dr. Richard Miller reminding you that good health is worth fighting for and it's essential for life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Mm-hmm.